sins of everyone who would put their faith in Him as Savior. He takes the punishment, we get mercy, freedom from wrath, and a boatload of promises. Promises like these, these all come from John's Gospel. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's a promise of God himself dwelling within us by the Holy Spirit who empowers us for life, who gets us through, who keeps us. A promise of this God resident within you through faith. That's a promise. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a promise that God will answer your prayers. That is, prayers that are in line with His will, which they will be if you, you abide in Him, if you continue in Him, and His Word abides in you and is instructing your mind and your heart and changing your desires. Those prayers will get answered. <laughs> That's a promise. John eleven twenty five. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a promise of resurrection. That's a promise that you're going to get a new body, that you're going to live forever. John 14, 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise that you will live with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth and be ecstatically happy forever. All of that is what you leave if you leave the Christian faith. Because as Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. Outside of faith in Jesus, you leave behind salvation, no matter what you replace Him with. Paul summed it up this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day, to be glorified in His saints. There isn't anything more ruinous than that. So if it's worth our time to learn from the temporary ruin of the sluggard, then it's absolutely worth our time to learn about the eternal ruin of someone who leaves the Christian faith. The stakes are immensely higher. So what do we learn? Here are some lessons that I think we can draw from Scripture that apply here. Things that give us perspective. Here's the first lesson. There are many Christians who are not genuine Christians. We'll just say it that way. There are many Christians who are not genuine Christians. And I say that because Scripture teaches that a genuine Christian cannot, will not lose their salvation. They cannot actually walk away from the faith, at least not in the deepest recesses of their hearts. They will persevere in the faith, ultimately. They will not lose their salvation. One text on that is Romans 8, 
verse 30. And we'll spend more time on this because we're going to restart our Romans series in a few weeks. And by God's grace, we might get to chapter 8 before the end of the year. We'll see. <laughs> Romans 8.30 says this, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that last phrase is especially important for our topic. It says, if you were justified by God, meaning that your sins are forgiven and God considers you to possess a perfect righteousness, if you've been justified, then you have also been glorified, meaning that you are raised to glorious eternal life. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul speaks about both justification and glorification in the past tense. You aren't resurrected yet, but you will be. Even though, so glorification is already here, and yet it's not here, is what he's saying. The only way that Paul can say and can talk that way is if your glorification comes as a guarantee of your justification. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're justified. And Paul says, you're as good as glorified because that's the guarantee that goes with it. That's a package deal. You don't get justification without glorification. They come together. So if you're in the faith, you're going to persevere in faith. You are going to reach the end. You are going to be in heaven. Guaranteed. It's as good as done. None will be lost who put their faith in Jesus. So a genuine Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. If you're converted, you're going to be resurrected. That's what the Bible teaches. So what then do we make of people who seem to be Christians but leave the faith? Well, it could be, you know, depending on the circumstance, that they're genuine believers who are going through a rough patch and it doesn't look good, but the, the faith is still down there somewhere, and it'll revive again. It could be that. But here's the other option, and this is the one we really seriously need to consider, is that they were not the genuine article. They were never justified. They never had a saving faith to lose. Whether that's true of Josh Harris or our friend's husband or all the teens that left the faith, no one can say. We don't know another person's heart. But God's word repeatedly warns that there are people who seem to be Christians, but they're not. And the most stunning example comes from what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. A bunch of us studied that in this last season. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So think about what Jesus says. 
There are some people who call Jesus Lord, and they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They look like Christians, but they won't be glorified. They won't be resurrected to eternal life. And when they argue their case with Jesus about why they should enter the kingdom, they will point to what they did in his name. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works, and we did it in your name. Any of us would look at that resume and say, well, you must be a Christian. <laughs> You've done amazing things in Jesus' name. In fact, I haven't even done those things. <laughs> but Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. While you were doing those things, you did not have an intimate relationship with me. You weren't joined to me as vine and branches. In your heart was lawlessness the whole time, not genuine saving faith. So depart from me. I never knew you. Now that's a perplexing passage. Because it suggests that you can actually be used by God to speak a prophetic word, to cast out a demon and it's a real de deliverance, to do a mighty work like pray for somebody to be healed and they're actually healed, that you can do all of that and not be a saved Christian. In fact, I would say that's not just suggested by the passage, that's what the passage teaches when people say they did all these Christian things, Jesus will not say, depart from me, you really didn't do that. No. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You can do all of that and still not know me. Why? Because prophetic words and deliverance from demons and miracles are ultimately God's doing, and he can even use a non-Christian to do it. D.A. Carson says in his commentary on the passage, The false claimants have prophesied in Jesus' name, and by that name exercise demons and perform miracles. There is no reason to judge their claims false. Their claims are not false, but insufficient. Judas is an example. He was one of the twelve apostles. In Matthew 10, 1, to whom Jesus gave authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And yet Jesus said of those same apostles in John 17, 12, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, meaning Judas. He was lost. He cast out demons and he healed people and he was lost to destruction, because he wasn't ever saved. Some people who seem to be believers and productive for God's kingdom will one day show their true colors and abandon the faith. It does happen. And we know the circumstances that usually bring it about. Jesus tells us what they are in the parable of the sower. That's in every gospel except for John. I'll just summarize the parable here. Jesus paints this picture of a man who throws seed on the ground. And some of it the birds eat. Some of it grows a little bit and then it withers. Some of it gets choked by weeds and then it 
withers, and then some of it grows to maturity, and it produces grain. And then he explains what all this means. And in the two cases where the seed grows a plant, but it doesn't produce any grain, that represents people who seem to respond to the gospel at first. It looks like they're Christians, but it doesn't last. The growth dies away. And here's why. Two reasons from the parable. One is this. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Second reason, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So in other words, fake Christians will be shown to be fake as soon as following Jesus is no longer safe and comfortable, or when other things in life look better than Jesus. Fake Christians stop following Jesus as soon as they no longer see it as in their best interests. Jesus said, you will be hated by all on account of my name. But many professing believers don't think that's what following Christ should look like. So once it gets hard, they opt out. And they reveal themselves as not the genuine article. I think we're going to see a lot more of this as Christianity continues to lose favor in our culture. Who wants to be called a bigot and a hater because you adhere to the Bible's teaching on human sexuality and gender? It's hard. Who wants to be an outcast in their family or lose their job because of their faith? Only genuine Christians will be able to endure that because only they have the Father and the Son and the Spirit dwelling within to be the power to get through every trial. But the fake ones who don't have the Spirit can't, can't endure that. Only the true believer can find joy even in suffering for Christ. Everybody else will say it's not worth it. So the first lesson is there are many Christians who aren't genuine Christians, and that's what we could be seeing when somebody walks away from the faith. But here's a second lesson, and we need to balance the first one with this. That the story isn't over until it's over. <laughs> the story isn't over until it's over. In other words, when someone falls away from the faith, we shouldn't automatically assume that's where they'll end up. They could be a genuine believer who's just suffering, can't find hope, just get me through a day, not sure if God's really there for me or not. There's a lot of psalms written for people like that, by the way. <laughs> We're crying out, why have you forsaken me? Could be that. It could be, you know, just looks bad, but there's still faith there. And they'll come back because they're the real thing. <laughs> because they can't genuinely lose their faith. They can't genuinely lose salvation. But even if they're not genuine believers, it doesn't mean that they will end up lost in the end. And probably the best illustration of that is the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's a long parable, so I'll just summarize it. you got two brothers. They live at home with their father. And one day when that father dies, he's going to give them the inheritance. Well, the younger brother doesn't want to wait. So he says to dad one day, hey, I want the inheritance now. 
So the dad gives it to him. He gets his inheritance. He spends all of it, wastes it completely in reckless living, it says. He ends up destitute, feeding pigs, eating their slop. He's the prodigal son, the one who extravagantly blows it all. One day, though, he comes to his senses. He realizes, "Uh uh-oh, what did I do? Realizes his sin, goes back to his father, repents before him. The father welcomes him with open arms, lavishes his love on him, lavishes gifts on him, much to the dismay of the older brother. But that's a picture of redemption, of salvation. This rebellious sinner, any rebellious sinner who repents before God and comes to him is welcomed by him with open arms. Doesn't matter what you did. Just come in. Just come. It's a beautiful picture of God's heart. Now, there's a lot in that parable, but here's how it applies to our topic. If you had watched the prodigal son leave town that day, after disrespecting his dad so shamefully, bent on independence and self-destruction, what hope would you have for that guy? I mean, I would be tempted to just write him off. Like, that's a road you don't come back from. (laughs) Like, you had it good here. There's nothing I could do to make it more appealing. And you left that. So so now what? I I don't see how you're ever going to think to come back here. That's what I'd think. This is the parent's worst nightmare. The child that I raised in a Christian environment rejects it all and wants nothing to do with me. Or with Christ. And again, I spoke to parents who are living that reality right now. Except we have the story of the prodigal son. (laughs) And that gives us hope. Because salvation is ultimately from the Lord, not from us. Every person who trusts Christ does so because the miracle of God overcoming their resistance and granting them repentance and belief. Yes, that often happens in a Christian environment, in a Christian upbringing, but it's still ultimately the work of God's grace whenever it happens, and God can still do that once that person's not under your influence. I know He can do that because my parents weren't even Christians, and I went to a school that was where prodigals go, to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which was known for excessive partying, and I got saved there. (laughs) It wasn't a seminary. (laughs) None of us knows the end of another person's story. As long as they're alive, there's hope. Through your prayers, through your witness, through the Holy Spirit, the person that walks away from Jesus may yet turn. So let's close with one more lesson. This applies to each of us directly. Is there a way to know how your story is going to end? Is there a way to know whether or not you are a genuine Christian? And that is a matter of life and death to answer that. You don't want to be the person to whom Jesus says on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. You want to know now while you can still do something about it. Here's what the scriptures tell us to do. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. 
Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. That comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul wrote that to a Christian church, to the Corinthian church. And he's telling them, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He didn't just automatically assume it. He doesn't assume that everybody who goes to a church building is a Christian. So he's writing this letter to the whole group saying, hey, test yourselves, examine yourselves. Is your faith a real saving faith or not? If you meet the test, that means Jesus Christ is in you by His Spirit. But if you fail to meet the test, then He is not in you. So how do we examine ourselves? How do we know if we're the real deal? Because if a person can prophesy and cast out demons and do many mighty works in Jesus' name, and that's not good enough, (laughs) what is the standard? How do I know? Well, we have a whole letter of the Bible written to help us in that. It's the letter of 1 John. John explained his letter this way in 1 John 5.13. He said, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. In order that you may know. So he's writing to, again, believers. And he said, I'm, I'm giving you a letter. This is getting towards the end of the letter. He says, here's why I wrote these things. I want you to know. I want you to have assurance. I want you to realize you have eternal life, and and here's how you can know. So that's what 1 John is all about. Um, It's about assurance. And what we learn from John's letter is that although salvation is by faith, and only by faith, assurance of salvation is by evidence. There's evidence. There's observable qualities about a person that you can know that, yes, that looks like genuine Christianity. That should give you assurance. John gives us a whole bunch of evidence throughout his letter. And we can't read the whole thing. There's a lot in there. But I'll just mention two kinds of evidence that he introduces in chapter 1 of his letter. Um, These are categories of how you can know, how you can test yourself to see if you're in the faith. The first one is obedience obedience to God. This comes from 1 John 1, 5-7. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in darkness is a metaphor for disobeying God, of living outside of His revealed moral will for you in His Scriptures, whereas walking in the light, on the other hand, is a metaphor for the obedient Christian life. It's actually doing what God commands to be done and and abstaining from what He forbids. If you do that, if that's your, your way of life, 
then John would say, know that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. That's an evidence that Jesus really has forgiven you because you obey, you walk in the light. That's what you want to do. It's the evidence that you're the real deal. Now, genuine Christians with a sensitive conscience might be discouraged at that because you know your own failures and your own sins all too well. <laughs> and you'll wake up some days and you'll wonder, am I even a Christian? <laughs> because of some besetting sin, something that you re relapsed into, something that dog, dogs you. I, just, I said these things last night. How could I say that? There's days where you wonder, am I even a Christian? Because you have a sensitive and active conscience. Well, John isn't talking about perfect obedience here. He's just talking about genuine obedience. If an apple tree produces only one apple, then that apple is enough evidence that it's a genuine apple tree. <laughs> right? You want to see more fruit in your life, but you know what? If there's a little bit <laughs> and it's genuine, then you're the real deal. <laughs> Take courage in that. Here's the second, obedience, or second evidence of the genuine believer, and it's contrition or sorrow for sin. John writes about that in 1 John 5, 8 and 2.10. He said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You're not a Christian if you say you have no sin. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's very encouraging, I think, for people of a tender conscience also. Because John includes himself when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John says, I can't say that. I've got sin, and he's an apostle. <laughs> he knew he had sin in his life, but he doesn't think that having sin in your life means you're not saved. Rather, he says, what you do with your sin is the evidence of whether or not you're saved. He says, if you admit it, that is, you don't say, I have no sin. And if you confess it, he says, confess your sins, that is, specific sins, not just general statements like, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> no, he's talking about identifiable things you've done <laughs> that you confess to, and you call it sin. He says, if that's your lifestyle, if I can see that in you, that is the very evidence that God has cleansed you from those sins. You feel bad about it. <laughs> you don't like it. You want it to stop. You want others to be brought into that with you, and you confess that, and you have, you have brothers and sisters that surround you. If, you're, if that's your life, he's saying, yeah, that's a good sign. <laughs> that's genuine Christianity. So how do you know if you're a genuine Christian outside of the obvious requirement that you believe in the name of the Son of God? You walk in obedience to God as an intentional course of life. And you sorrow over your sins. Notice that neither of those things has anything to do with the results of doing it. The evidence is not whether you prophesy or 
cast out demons or do many mighty works. You can do none of those things and be a real Christian. <laughs> Though there will be fruit of some kind. Even in the parable of the sower, there's some that produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. It's not all the same, but there's something there. <laughs> Where there's birth, new birth, there's going to be growth and there's going to be some kind of fruit. And it'll look like obedience and it'll look like contrition. Let me just close. <clears throat> I want to leave you with one more encouragement on that, which is that it doesn't ultimately depend on you to keep yourself in the faith. It doesn't ultimately depend on you to keep yourself in the faith. That would be scary. <laughs> we are fallen human beings. And if salvation depends on our resolve to obey, or am I repenting enough, or do I feel bad enough about it, if that's where it really rests, we could never have any assurance. We just aren't strong enough. We can't keep ourselves, not with all the pressures that we face externally and internally. But here's the good news. There is one who has committed himself to keeping us. Jesus has promised to keep those who are his, to keep us in the faith, to keep us to the end. He said this in John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How can you be more secure than that? You got Jesus' hand wrapped around you and the Father's hand wrapped around that. And he says, nobody can take you out of there. I'm going to keep you is what he's saying. If you're justified, you will be glorified because of this. <laughs> you might have bad days. You might have serious setbacks. You might wake up at the absolute bottom of things sometimes. But Jesus has you if you're his. Paul said, the Lord knows those who are his, <laughs> even when we don't. <laughs> Even if you lose your mind to Alzheimer's or something, and you don't know who you are, Jesus knows who you are. He knows you're his. We're going to close by affirming that truth, that he's going to keep us. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing a song, He Will Hold Me Fast, by Keith and Kristen Getty. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can sing this because it's true. He will hold me fast. If you're not a genuine believer, then put your faith in Christ now to forgive your sins. Put your faith in Jesus as your sin bearer on the cross, the one who paid the penalty for you. Just tell him you're sorry, confess your sin, and receive eternal life. Receive him as Savior. And then you can sing, he will hold me fast. Let me just pray. There's a bunch of miracles represented here in this room, Lord. Anybody who's gone from darkness to light, it was by your doing. You said, I give them eternal life. This is your gift. This is what you do. We thank you for that. If there's anyone here, Lord, that hasn't gotten that gift, would you do it now? 
Move in their heart to give them repentance and faith, trust in you. Put now new birth in there. Put now the spirit into their life and resurrect them. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.